Future CEOs on CliffCentral.com. Welcome to Future CEOs here on Cliff Central. My name is Gareth Armstrong. It's great to be with you. And week in and week out, what are we doing here on Future CEOs? Well, we try to bring the best and brightest into studio so that we can learn from them because, well, they've, they've done so much in their lives and there's so much to learn from them. Aaron, how do you feel about me saying that, well, we, we're here to learn from you today and our listeners are listening to learn? Well, I uh, have some experience as an English teacher, so I have been a teacher. Oh, really? uh, Yeah, it's an honor to be here and have the chance to kind of give my story. And uh, hopefully that story can be educational for people. Well, that's the voice of Byron Klatterberg, the Chief Executive Officer of CECOM. Yes, the CECOM. And uh, we're so very grateful to have you here in studio with us. Um, you've got a, a bit of a different history to a tra- potentially traditional CEO type who may be a, a CA or, or some kind of business degree. You started in a very different place. And you also have a number of different environments under your belt, uh, including a, a lengthy stay in Hong Kong, as I understand. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in kind of a quintessential American uh, community on the east coast of the United States near Washington, D.C. Mm. And, you know, all those things of delivering papers and selling seeds and expo tickets as a Boy Scout and raking leaves and shoveling snow and then... Went uh, out to Colorado to go to school and worked my way to pay for my living expenses by waiting tables and being a bartender and all those kind of things. Mm. So I think, you know, a lot of those experiences are very humbling experiences where you kind of understand the kind of hard work that goes into very uh, relatively what we would think of as mundane tasks, but are actually very important Mm. tasks. Um, Yeah, very formative in their nature. Yeah, and uh, and I studied history at school um, and... uh, yeah, at that time, that was this was way back in 1986 when I graduated from university. And at that time, I said, you know, I wanted to study Chinese. Okay. And, uh, funnily enough, in 1986, I moved to Taiwan uh, to study Mandarin Chinese. Uh, and obviously, I chose Taiwan because I could work there. Mm. Uh, also, they used the traditional Chinese characters in their writing. And since I was a history major, I thought I should learn those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could Successfully, work. yes. Yeah, I think pretty successfully. I spent okay. uh, three years there studying Mandarin Chinese. Then when I moved to Hong Kong, which was 89, I was actually working in and out of China. So I traveled all over China uh, and then uh, worked in China for about five years as well. Okay. And uh, negotiating joint ventures in Mandarin Chinese. So mm. I think I can still hold my own in Mandarin Chinese. You also have, a, as I understand, an MBA from the University of Hong Kong. Is that Yeah, correct? while I was in Hong Kong, I, I decided I wanted to, you know, I was in business and working in business. And I thought the uh, next step for me would be to do a master's. So I did a three-year executive program at the University of Hong Kong. So. Uh, often people look at that an MBA and an MBA experience, and and um, uh, I've heard it said that you, you kind of slap it on your. Uh, it's a badge that you you kind of boldly and and often sometimes overbearingly will will throw around. The MBA experience for you, just to those who may be considering that. I mean, what's what's the real value of of an advanced uh, qualif- qualification like an MBA? Yeah, I mean, for me at that time, uh, I was in my 30s. I hadn't started a family yet. It was nine hours a week of classes, so it was I had to go to class. Uh, I think a lot of MBAs today, you can do them online, mm. um, so you don't have to commit that kind of time and that discipline. But I think that was the first thing. You had to commit the time and the, the discipline to go to class, Okay, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, six to nine, and that's mm. a tough one when you're a 30-year-old working guy in, in Hong Kong and your buddies want to go have beers on Friday nights and you're, mm. I got to go to class first. Yeah. Um, but also I was uh, you know, the only uh, Caucasian member of my class, so there was that aspect of interacting with Hong Kong students in an English-speaking environment, uh, but I got to know a lot about you know, and made a lot of friends during that period uh, in the community in Hong Kong. So that was kind of another aspect of it. And certainly the lecturers, because it was Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is a very international city, you know, you had lecturers from the UK, from Australia, from sure. Hong Kong, from China, from the United States. So it was very international type MBA. Uh, and, you know, you get, I think a lot of those things, you get what you put in. And, mm. you know, I, I learned quite a bit. It was good for me. I was never great in math or finance, and that was my, it was challenging for me. But, you know, some of the other areas of marketing and human interaction, communication, I was quite mm. good at. But, you know, I felt that the challenging subjects were the ones that helped me, at least. Uh, 
I, I don't know if I'm if I'm allowed to speak about the this marketing thing that you've just raised. We were talking mm. off air about uh, a little stint in 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 marketing. <laughs> I'm going to do in, inverted commas marketing, um, but actually you were a model for a, a short stint. Am I, are we allowed to yeah, talk I about should, that? Yeah, I shouldn't have brought that up. Obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, I was in Taiwan and I was an English teacher at the time, and I was uh, studying Mandarin in the mornings, you know, a couple hours uh, a day, and then I would go and work and teach English. And I got approached uh, to be a model, um, you know, because I said anyone could be a model at that time <laughs> in Taiwan, so it doesn't mean I'm especially attractive in any way. Uh, but I had quite an American look, let's say. And and, and, um, and yeah, you said they were, they were trying to sell goods back into into Western markets, and so you were their go-to. Fans. Yeah, that was some of the embarrassing uh, experience there, which was <laughs> you know I went for a photo shoot, and the guy dressed me up in gym clothes that he thought was suitable yeah. um, to market some elbow braces and wrist braces for tennis and oh, yeah. knee pads and all these kind of things. And, uh, you know, a year later, I'm walking around in Bethesda, Maryland with one of my high school friends and we're in a shop, sporting goods shop. And guess <laughs> whose picture is on the wall? And of course, my friends had a great, yeah, uh, uh, great uh, laugh about that one. Thank God it, in today's age, this was probably in 1988. Pre-social pre media. Yeah, exactly. That would have been posted everywhere and I would have been very embarrassed. So well, could have good luck trying to, to find that stuff now. Yeah, I could, I'm not going to give you the names of the movies or the products. I will try and avoid searching. Um, but yes, it certainly could have taken you in another direction. But uh, but it didn't. And, no, it and didn't, but it, it's a very good experience. Exactly. I mean, I think all these things, you know, whether, you know, as I said, the paper boy when I gr was growing up or selling seeds or tickets or waiting tables or bartending or the modeling or even learning another language. Mm. I think you put yourself in a position that you kind of can understand where other people are coming from. And, mm. you, and you realize, you know, you, you kind of open up your mind a bit to other people's perspectives and the challenges they face and mm. how they have to deal with things. Mm. Uh, you know, and I think maybe that's that romantic thing, but you develop some empathy for people and, and you start to think, hey, okay, let's, you know, let's understand where they're coming from and how you can work with these kind of different people mm. doing different jobs. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly, uh, after many, many interviews uh, and, and a fair bit of understanding, the, the idea or the need for, not the idea, the certainly the very real need for an empathetic position, not necessarily sympathetic because that can lead you off in the wrong direction, but an empathetic p position or the ability to or skill um, puts you in a, in a far superior place than some kind of technical skill and you seem to have um, gravitated to that kind of thing quite early on. I mean, certainly if you're in a marketing sales environment, human interaction environment, um, I wanted to quickly ask, uh, before we go too far into your journey, if, is there a skill, just off the top of your head, is there a skill or ability that um, you can pinpoint that has taken or brought you as far as you have now come? Just off the top of your head. Yeah, I guess what, it, would, it would relate to that, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a skill. It's certainly a, an, an attitude, um, okay. and it's a positive attitude to kind of being open-minded. Uh, and being open to new experiences or, or new ways of looking at things. Okay. Um, and then, of course, and I, and I think that does apply to as you look in a, at a role of a CEO mm. or you try and develop a business, really understanding where where the market, where customers are going, where are things headed in terms of trends, mm. and then how do you take that on board and think through all of your options to how do you address going after that market, as an example. Mm. Uh, I think if you you know if you take things with a technical skill or you know, a product view, then you're trying to push something that you want to push into the marketplace or in, onto people. Whereas I think if you keep your mind open, you kind of think, hey, there's a, there's a need out there. How could I, you know, develop something that meets that requirement? Mm. Um, the, the, what, what you're saying is very interesting. And I learned uh, quite early on in my career that, uh, that confident, there's a definition for confidence. And, and that is that confidence, uh, um, Besides all the the other softer elements, I, I was trying to figure out what what how do you define real confidence? What, what is it really made of? What what's that tangible something? And the definition that I learned and I've I've tested over and over again um, in various different ways is that confidence is trust in processes that work. 
which is quite interesting if you begin to pull it apart a little bit. Uh, and so what you're describing is the ability to put yourself into someone's shoes as the ability that has brought you as far as you, you are in your career at this particular stage. Is there a, a, a set of processes or a process that you might apply to the ability to be empathetic? I mean, are there, are there two or three steps that you may follow just automatically or subconsciously that you now are being consciously asked to reflect on? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, they're just basic ones of, of listening as well as you know maybe communicating. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you think about empathy and trying to understand someone, you have to listen to them first, right? And I think that definition of confidence versus you know arrogance would be mm-hmm. one where confidence is something that's kind of inside you and that allows you the comfort to try and do new things and understand new things. And arrogance is that shell you put over yourself that says, no, I'm not going to listen or, mm. or look at new ways. I'm right al- already, and I'm going to put up that shell. And we obviously see that today amongst a lot of leaders uh, globally. Sure. Uh, and I think there's a very real difference between those two. But I think, you know, listening to people, understanding people, and then that develops empathy, right? Uh, and then you can figure out a way to communicate uh, and relate to those people. What, what I so appreciate about the, the answers, and, and if we had more time, um, because we've got a lot of questions, sure. and, uh, and there's, there's a lot that you are able to share, but if we had more time, we could probably um, fall down that rabbit hole, which is, well, how do you develop empathy? You're saying you listen. And then the question, of course, would be, well, how do you actually listen? Because listening is a, a skill in and of itself. Uh, and, and anyway, so the, so mm. the, the thoughts of our future CEO's community um, are reflected uh, back in often conversations that I will have in other environments, and they'll ask, why didn't you ask this question? Why didn't you go further down down the rabbit hole? But let, let's move a little bit along. So you, you get your MBA at 30 years old um, or so, uh, is that 31, correct? 31, yeah. 31, yeah. What happens next? Uh, does that send you in a in – a, uh, does it change tra- your trajectory? Does it move you into a different place? What, what happens after that? Yeah, at the, at the time um – uh, I was doing my MBA. When I started, I was doing some consulting work in China, working okay. for various multinational companies, looking to expand in China. And then while I was doing the MBA, I actually joined one of those multinationals in the technology space, uh, an American company, Texas Instruments. Okay. Um, and they wanted to move production into China to open up the market in China. So they kind of tied in together with those those things. Um, and, you know, being a, kind of a jack of all trades, I managed to, you know, get a job within a technology company based mm. on my language and cultural skills and mm. general business knowledge, et cetera. And so I didn't have any technical skill about motor protecting devices mm. or semiconductors, um, but I did learn as much as you can learn uh, on the job. But I had the, the cultural knowledge and the business knowledge and the communication and presentation skills. And this was actually forming a joint venture company with a Chinese government-owned entity. So you're, so you're a linchpin of sorts. Yeah, so I was the guy in the middle trying to bridge the two cultural gaps between a company based in Dallas, Texas, and one based in, uh, in Baoing, China. Mm. Um, so that was quite an interesting role to play. Uh, and because it was China, and because at that time, very exciting times, I got to meet very high-level people within the company when mm. I was just a 31, 32-year-old. Mm. So that was very lucky for me because it was China. It was the first joint venture in China. China, China, China. This was the 80s, uh, 90s, mm. uh, sorry. And, um, you know, very exciting and very precedent-setting for a big company like Texas Instruments at the time. Um, so I got to know some very senior people, and that le- then ended up leading on to my next career somewhat. Okay. Um, which was in telecommunications. So okay. that's how I moved into telecom, was actually which, from Texas Instruments to a telecoms company. Yeah, and which is where you are today. Um, as you reflect on that period of, of your life, I mean, here's, a, here's a, a nice, interesting question. And if you were to look at a mistake that you made uh, that was just pure naivety, what is that? What is that mistake that you think you may have made in your career then? And t- tell us that. Tell us the story. Give us the co- set the context and tell us how this happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you make a lot of mistakes, obviously, sure. uh, and you learn from them. Some you don't want to admit to yourself. Sure, others sure. you you face up to. Um, yeah, I would say probably I'm quite a uh, energetic uh, person. Okay, uh, and therefore get a bit impatient sometimes. You know, and and big corporations move slowly. Yes, they do. Um, so I encountered some frustration, and instead of being patient and and realizing that you know the wheels will move and they're moving in the right direction, 
um, yeah, I got impatient and, uh, you know, we would say spit the dummy um, and uh, and left the company. Uh, oh, okay, so it wasn't... And it wasn't probably in my best interest at the time. I mean, again, things work out and you go down a different path and maybe it's better, maybe it's not. Who really knows, right? You make choices and you move on. But I think I... I would say I, I made that choice for the wrong reasons, and I have learned from that that you know sometimes you need to be a bit more patient. Um, that you know you've got a large group of people, a lot of people have opinions. Mm. You've got to listen. You've got to kind of build consensus. You've got to go in a certain direction. Mm. Um, and if you get frustrated by that too easily, then you can just do damage to yourself. Right? It's how you interpret what's happening and how you react to what's happening that is key. So, but what a fantastic lesson uh, given. Uh, uh, Potentially in retrospect, of course, but what a fantastic lesson to to learn early on in your career. Uh, I th- I think if I may, can we can we try and dissect what patience is for just a moment? Because I can hear our listeners saying, "But how in the world do you do that?" Especially in a fast-paced environment like we are, where machines, the big wheels, and the, the machines of of let's call it industry, still. Uh, they move. They do move slowly, but we we've got this this juxtaposition, this contrast between the the really fast moving digital environment, for example, and and these these longer decisions that need to be played out, much like you've described now. I mean, what is patience, and how do we actually exercise it? How do we? And, and exercises, of course, uh, yeah, an, an interesting way to look at it. No, I would say in today's uh, world, with you know things being posted online almost immediately, mm-hmm. uh, you know. E- People expect emails to be responded to immediately, uh, you know, um, phone calls to be answered. You're always online. You're always available. Um, and I think that that, you know, I think it's always a challenge for leaders in a business to say, hey, step back. Don't be bombarded and be reactive. You've got to think about what's important. You've got to think about which things you need to focus on and your team needs to focus on mm. that are the important stuff. Because I think, you know, today it comes in phone calls, WhatsApp. SMS, email, yeah, Facebook direction. post, you know, you name it and you get bombarded and then of course you end up just spending your time reacting and mm-hmm. you don't step back and go, hang on a minute, where's the ship going? You know, you're down in the hull mm-hmm. trying to fix, uh, you know, a piston screw. Yeah. Meanwhile, the ship's heading for the rocks. So I think you've got to, you know, sometimes step back and you've got to discipline yourself actually to be patient, mm. to think, hey, I need this time to distill down some thoughts, look at some things, think bigger picture, think longer term. Um, and, you know, and that pressure, especially on a CEO and on, on leaders, you know, people want monthly sales numbers, they mm-hmm. want quarterly performance numbers, mm-hmm. they want annual numbers, right? And we create this environment that is very time constrained without really thinking, you know, what's the mission? What are we trying to do? And what are we trying to offer as a service into the market? And are we improving upon that and doing a better job? Um, and, you know, as I said, a lot of these things take time. And so even your, you'd have to ask for patience from your shareholders or mm-hmm. from your boss, uh, which is not obviously not uh, not as easy as it sounds, mm. but I think that ability to get away from the barrage uh, of that kind of reactive behavior and put yourself in a position where you actually take time, you force yourself to take the time to think about things and think long term. There's this beautiful French saying that I I don't know how to say, um, so I'm not going to try, but it, it translates into uh, taking a step back so you can jump higher. And I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Uh, and and but what I also heard you say about patience was that it's a it's a discipline, and it's a discipline that includes a great deal of of reflection, but reflection um, in a particular kind of way. So you, you're looking forward in a particular kind of way. You're examining your actions now in relation to what you are trying to achieve in the future. And so there's this. Thank you. Mm. I think you've helped us with. Um, figuring out for each each of ourselves in our different contexts what patience might be or, or how to examine it. Yeah, and I, I was I thought you were actually going to bring up a quote that uh, I've used a few times and I, I can't remember who uh, who said it originally, but it's basically sorry that I wrote you such a long letter, but I didn't have time to write you a shorter Short letter, one. Yeah, because I think people get into this verbal, you know, I don't want to use a bad word, but. Uh, mm barrage of mm. information without actually, hey, let's distill that down. And if you actually wanted to say, what are the three bullet point takeaways that are absolutely critical? That actually takes time and effort to discipline yourself to think through that. Mm. It's very easy just to write a you know a long treatise on anything, but actually can you distill it down into the summary? Because that's really what people are going to read and probably understand and accept. And then you have to repeat it to them. 
I've, um, I've worked with I've worked with someone a senior executive in a in a business the most senior executive, uh, and he didn't read emails. He just he, he would he would read the bullets occasionally, but he if he saw something that looked like anything longer than a, a two or three line An paragraph, trail, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not even going to happen. And and he operated or uh, and operates on his mobile device. And yeah. if you if you think about who you're communicating with as, as well, uh, you are likely to change the way that you will communicate. But thank you, thank you for using that. Yeah, I think you uh, if you take that. that out, I think you know. Yeah, I, I get it all the time. You get email chains, and people expect you to read down to the you know the the twentieth email at the mm. bottom of that chain, and that you know, I just can't spend that time. So yeah. I do need people, and I try and enforce it. You guys need to summarize. What are you asking for? You know, can you provide clarity? Get the key points out. Mm. And actually, a lot of people really struggle with that. They just cannot get a grip on it. And They'll uh, miss the key points, which is quite surprising. But that's that's a challenge. Yeah, and yeah. it, it, it is a challenge. I think it's a challenge of of a certain kind of development. Um, especially in an inf- in an age where there's so much information and you can pull out so much, but that's why um, you pay people to do certain jobs and you have expectations on them. Let's talk about not necessarily your pay, but but <laughs> the jobs that then you were called to do as you've risen to this point of the the CCOM CEO. Uh, what was next? So you joined a telecommunications business after you were with. Uh, I think you said Texas Instruments? Texas Instruments, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then I left Texas Instruments and joined a company called British Telecom, BT. Mm. And this was a big time of change for BT. And at that time, BT, I was in Hong Kong uh, in their Asian headquarters, and BT was looking to expand and invest uh, in Asia. Um, and I just completed this joint venture uh, for and a few other licensing uh, operations in China for Texas Instruments. So... Um, they thought, want to get into China? This guy seems to know how to set up JVs and, and it worked with technology companies. Like, it's good, going to be a good fit. And it just so happened that the CEO at the time of BT was an ex-Texas Instruments guy. Uh, okay. Well, so, that, you know, you get an introduction, you get a name, okay, it helps. Um, but to, so, your, to your point earlier, which is you were able to, uh, I'm going to use the word hobnob a little bit, but but mix and, and build relationships with some senior executives, I think, early on. To yeah, your point. well, I think, you know, I was lucky in the sense that in 1980. Uh, six when I graduated university. I mean, this was eighty six. Mm. China was not exactly on people's radar, really. Mm. I mean, it had just opened up some special economic zones. It was still a very poor and backward and rural country. The manufacturing waves hadn't hit. You know, the, all of that infrastructure hadn't been built. Mm. Uh, and you know, so taking a punt and saying I'm going to go learn Mandarin Chinese in nineteen eighty six. I'm not saying no one was doing it, but it was kind of a step that was. Yeah, it was the path. led me on a path, so yeah. to speak, um, and because of that, then I got some opportunities. I would say. So, I, I just uh, I, I, on that on that particular point, did you, did you do that with some form of strategy in mind, or was it was it you as a young person just saying, "I want to go and learn Chinese. I want to go and learn Mandarin. I, I want an Eastern experience." Or, or did you say, yeah. "Did you see in the back of your mind, uh, uh, are you are you saying that you really did see the opportunity?" Yeah, maybe a little bit of the opportunity okay. because at that time I think Japan was actually the mm. the big upcoming. You know, in, in America at that time, you know, all the talk was about the Japanese are mm. taking over and they're buying buildings and golf courses and everything, right? Um, and I was studying martial arts at the same time I was going to university, uh, so I did think about Japan. But then I kind of thought, well, you know, I talked to some of my professors and they said, well, you know, really, when you get down to it, you know, if you really want to understand Asia and all the influences in Asia and really North Asia, but then you need to understand China mm. and, you know, and, and the Chinese language and the influence of the Chinese language and thought and philosophy on all of the other major Asian nations, mm. mostly, if you talk about North Asia. Mm. So that's how it kind of panned out. I think I, on the one hand, I was fascinated by when one of my college professors wrote a Chinese character on the blackboard and he wrote the character for Dao and uh, Dao Ke Dao. And I thought, that's their language? So it's a picture and it has all this meaning, and mm. it can mean all these different things. Yeah, this, and that's when they hit in their head, they think with that picture in their head. They don't have an alphabet. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of, and I asked him, and you learned this language? And he said, yeah, I, I lived in Taiwan for, for five years. You know, mm. I did my PhD in Chinese. And I was just amazed that that could happen, that, you know, here's a bearded Caucasian guy saying, hey, he's absolutely fluent, can read ancient analect uh, texts of Confucians, 
in Chinese. Mm. So I was just, wow, blown away. Oh, yeah, so it was this coming together of these two worlds. Yeah. Okay. So I thought, you know, let, let's go and explore it. And, I, you know, I arrived in Taiwan with a, with a backpack and one-way ticket uh, with no real knowledge of what was going to happen, you know. Um, so it was a little scary, but, you know, it's funny. You, you, you're, you're scared and you're nervous and you're thinking, how do I even get downtown? You know, how do I find? I had an address for a for another student I could look up, but of course this was before mobile phones, emails, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I got a piece of paper with the address in English, and I'm walking around Taipei. Does anyone know where 25 <laughs> Wenzhou Street is? And the people are looking at me like, what? Um, I managed to find it, you know, and everything just works out, you know. Yeah, so yeah. of course you're nervous, you're scared, but it all works out. But yeah, you know? that's part of the adventure. Yeah. Uh, let, let's uh, let's move it along a little bit, and and you find yourself in some leadership leadership positions as you're growing in your career mm. now. Uh, the interesting uh, question that we used to ask, we don't really ask it too much anymore because it, I think it's become quite obvious and we, we re- recount it rather than ask the question is uh, how much of your career um, has been spent or used on a technical understanding and the ability to technically um, execute somewhere and and that was in the first phase of your career so I'm not asking this very well mm. uh, and then later on in your career it seems to change but in your in your case the um, the answer is always technical, and then people here at the at the other end. Which so in a leadership environment, you're dealing with people. You're not really dealing with technical that much. Um, it could be done below even forty percent of of the job that you do. Is that your experience? I mean, you're in a technical environment. Yeah, I'm in a technical environment, and I joined BT without any understanding of telecommunications as such. Um, but I again, I leveraged some you know cultural knowledge and some general business knowledge and China experience to to get into telecoms. Um, And of course, you know, set my mind to learn as much as I could. Um, And again, I was fortunate that I was involved in the kind of mergers and acquisitions side Mm. of BT, which again is quite high profile. So I got a bit, you know, again, put myself in a position where I didn't have to know exactly how an SMS was sent from China to to the UK, or mm. how you bill, or all these technical, or how they interface and recognize phone numbers, and you know all the technology that goes in. But I could understand the business, the number of users, revenue, you know how much, you know. So, from a commercial and business perspective, and a market perspective, you can understand how that technology can be applied. And I think that carries forward. You know, after twenty years in the telecoms industry, I certainly understand. You know, one would say I specialize in data transmission networks. Mm. Right, CECOM is all about building the African internet. Uh, I'm not an expert on internet protocol. Um, you know, I understand the hardware suppliers and all that. But when you get down to actually building the infrastructure and then delivering a service, we're really a service company. Mm. We're becoming more and more a service company. So does the manager of the hotel have to understand how the floor polishers operate? And you'd say, no, he doesn't. Right? Mm. He doesn't need to know how to cook the, the, the chicken with spinach. But he knows service, and he knows from the customer experience what is that experience going to be, and how do you organize people to deliver that experience. The technology is just one part of it. Uh, I think, actually, you know, there's lots of companies that can lead in technology but fail in the marketplace. Yeah, there's no exactly. question about it. Yep. And there's certainly companies that have, you know, focus on a product or a technology that they like but it's not really meeting a market requirement and the you know the the classic story of the marketing myopia where it's the railways who you know improve their trains and the service on mm. the trains and the seats are better on the trains and blah 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 but actually people start flying yeah exactly you know, <laughs> and you miss the point yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. so I th- and i think that still happens today right people get caught in the technology and then you know, it's we've yet to see whether a lot of the the kind of cloud service provider type companies can they sustain themselves really? Mm. Right, they're relatively new if you think about it. Uh, and you know, you see the somewhat we look at the demise of the the large corporates of the past and the and the advent of these new companies and the way they do things. But are they going to be around in a hundred years? Yeah, uh, you know, even fifty years, we don't know. Uh, at this point. And, and I think uh, what seems to have happened is that we have moved away from even wanting to build companies for that period of time. We just There seems to be these five-year entry and exit strategies that are now developed. And so no one, often people then don't build the right type of entities in the right way with the right values and the right outlook. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. I think there's a lot of, well, there's money looking for a home. So there's money out there, you know, big money, mm-hmm. looking for the next, you know, technological advance or next next new service or or uh, or app you know and more and more um and there's people who want to s- sell that story but is it really a sustainable value add to our society mm. and does is that really going to continue forward and create a viable business 
and again, again, the jury's still out on a few of those. Right? Well, uh, I, what I'm what I'm picking up from you is a little bit of pessimism around that. Uh, do you are you happy to explore that a little bit? Something? I think the pessimism is around that, you know, just by having technology or having that uh, a certain specific skill or knowledge that you can succeed over the longer term. Mm. Uh, you know, I think what I've learned and you know talking about patience and all these things is that. Even you, what you see in economies and what you see as at, at a country level or within a corporate environment, things take time, mm-hmm. right? And the things you do this year will affect you two years from now, you know? And I think, you know, we, a lot of these kind of startups that we were just talking about are, it's got to be quick. You got to show a quick return, right? Some are longer term investments. And I think, again, some you would say inherently offer a value. They mm-hmm. offer a solid value proposition and they've changed a market dramatically. Yeah, exactly. And I think those companies will continue to succeed if they mm-hmm. continue to invest and develop serving that market requirement. I guess I was speaking about some of the other ones which come up with something, you know, ridiculous. Uh, what was it? The water kettle that's connected to your internet that, you, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, there's there's things that go a little too far, right? Sure. Uh, and, uh, and you think that's not really offering much value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, certainly in the world now that you're just saying that the, in this internet of things um, thing that we're seeing, there is some ridiculous out yeah. there, which is quite it's also fun to watch yeah, it's fun to watch and i think if you step back from it you think you know what that could mean right mm-hmm. and how that gets applied into smart cities traffic mm-hmm. congestion you know sanitation there's there's all kinds of good applications a lot of those are probably things that the government needs to kind of work with private industry to develop but there's obviously a lot of little private industry trying to pop up and and find some money and 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 make a quick buck if you would, if mm-hmm. you look at it that way. So I I think I started this part of our conversation by speaking about the the the, the difference between um, the skill set that's necessary to be a technical operator and then to be a leader uh, in a certain kind of environment. Uh, the people skills are high there, but do you ever get frustrated with with um, either a lack or too much technical ability, and how do you deal with that in within your team? Yeah, well, I think you know that would probably be the next most important thing is that you need to build a team around you that kind of you know supports and augments uh, your capabilities, right? So I think having a strong technical person uh, and a strong technical team that can help deliver the vision and what you're trying to achieve is very important. So yeah, you've got to surround yourself with the right people, the right finance people, the right uh, marketing people, the right sales people. You know all these functions can you get so people are motivated they understand where you want to try and go and they know what they need to do okay so but how do you do this so you've said augment some of your skills um, and abilities but how do you find the right people the right people is the or right is the word that is uh, yeah emphasis i think um i mean it'd be great if uh, if you could start up a company and you know have a blank slate so to speak mm. Um, and uh, and build it, but that poses its own challenges. But I think that's very rare. Um, I think generally speaking, I've come into companies where I've had a job and I've been put in charge of people. I had no, uh, you know, say in choosing those people, mm. but I had to work mm. with them right? mm. and I had to get the best out of them. I've come into other jobs where I, I had to build a team. I'm the first guy, and within two years, we have 200 people mm. under me. So you know, there you can choose and sometimes you choose badly you know that's the reality of you know you're not always going to be right when mm. you choose and sometimes you'll inherit a team and find out hey you've got some great people here so i think it's really how you put those people to use so to speak in terms of making sure they're clear on what they need to do they're motivated you know they want to come in and and perform their their role and contribute to the greater good i mean i think that's the key mm. and i think you can you know you can i use a lot of military analogies or or naval analogies yeah, please do right uh, and you mentioned some of the books I like to read, and I, I like that uh, because I think you know, in a lot of those military or naval situations, you have somebody comes in and he's got to now captain that ship. Mm. He can't say get rid of all the midshipmen, all the lieutenants, and all of the the, the men on board and change them out. Mm. Right? It's not going to happen. Mm. He's got to actually mold that team into something. And I think we've seen time and time again that there are the right kind of charismatic leaders who can take whatever you give them. And they can turn it into something better. But how and do you I think that is the that's the challenge, right? And that's why we say great leaders, right? And I think that you know, if you look at history and you 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 think about some of the commonalities of some of those uh, people, we would consider incredible leaders, people who've changed. You know, whether you're Julius Caesar, Napoleon, mm-hmm. or or Genghis Khan, you know, it's. I think a lot of that goes back to our first conversation about empathy. Mm-hmm. Right? These are not guys who keep themselves aloof. These are guys who go have dinner with the men who eat exactly. what they're eating and they go down and they understand really what makes them tick. And but I think that is the fundamental 
difference or that has made the difference in them coming up and being who they are and able to lead the way they have led? The, the best, I, I, I think you can call it treaties of sorts that I've read on the difference between management and leadership is that, um, and the key difference is that leaders delight the rank and file. They, they just, they are able to connect. They do, they walk with them. They, they go to, I mean, just thinking about a Napoleon who was, who it was, it was well documented that um, he would go and visit after a battle the, the individuals that were sick and ill, and then this is what he would do. He wouldn't just let them go into a medical tent and, and do whatever, whatever they needed to do there. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, though, sticking with the potential, <laughs> the, the, the um, naval theme, which is, and it's a question of mutiny. Have you ever faced... And we don't have to go into the, all the detail, mm. but I think there's key lessons to learn from someone that has faced mutiny or the threat of mutiny. And how have you dealt with that in in your careers and team and teams? Yeah, yeah. I think or, you know, mutiny is a strong word. I think certainly it is, it in, is a strong in a corporate word. environment, certainly you have uh, you know the water cooler gossip and the people who you know are unsatisfied or dissatisfied or believe that things could be done better or differently. Mm. And, and you always get that, right? Mm. And you. You know, um, so you can't, you know, overly take that to heart, right? I think you've got to always, again, step back and think of the big picture, right? And, and I think in, in today's society, you know, you read all the time in the news now about, you know, tweet responses. See, so mm-hmm. they take the sample of four people and they say, oh, there's been negative. Res-, and you're like four people mm-hmm. out of, you know. So while you always hear that negative and it, and it gets, uh, you know, posted and reported on, that really doesn't give you the real gauge of really what's happening. And I think as a leader, you've got to just kind of ignore the noise, um, right? You've got to ignore the people with, who, are, who are, you know, fawning on you with false praise as much as you have to have the naysayers. Mm. You know, generally I don't like, and I think most leaders don't like, uh, you know, negativity. Sure. Um, so I think that is just something you need to, you know, you, you need to have optimism. You need to have confidence. You know, if you don't buy into the story or you think things could be done better, then bring it up and, and let's try and fix it. Don't just complain. Mm. But I, that's a challenge just because, you know, corporations and companies are made up of people and mm. people, that's just a natural thing. And some people are more inclined to complain and to, to moan. I don't know if they'll mutiny. I mean, sure. I've never been in a situation where people actively sabotaged, you know, <laughs> yeah, or yeah. tried to, you know. That's why it is very strong. You know, sure, put me overboard with, uh, you know, like Captain Bly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, also you never wanted to get to that point, mm. right? So if you look at the mutiny on the bounty, a fam- famous uh, naval example, mm. how did it get that far? Right? You'd have to ask the question. There was obviously not enough communication mm. going on between, well, Lieutenant Bly, he wasn't a captain, uh, and his first officer and the men. So obviously he misread the situation because he wasn't communicating with them. Yep. And, so. and to, to your point of, uh, and you said ignore, but I know what you mean. You don't mean just shut it off or no, shut you, it No, you out. can't shut it off. It, you, uh, you allow it to come in. You need to absorb it, but you need to have a thick skin and not allow it to affect you, but be dialed in enough to be able to understand when enough is enough. I think that, yeah. that's what I've heard you say. Yeah, and I think certainly I think most people, maybe me because I'm, a, I'm that romantic, you know, one person criticizing me hurts me more than 10 people praising me just because I always think I hear the I negativity re- I and, I, and I, mm-hmm. I get sensitive to it. So so it does affect you. So I'm not saying you ignore it. I'm just saying you've got to take it and step back and go, mm-hmm. hang on a minute. You know, what are the 90% of the things that we're doing right? And then, okay, yes, we've got this 10% problem. Yes, we can improve it. Mm-hmm. You know, But I've never worked anywhere or been any part of any organization where you've got 100% of everything working perfectly. Sure. You know, if you want to, you know, reach that nirvana someday you maybe you will but i just don't think it really exists i think you have to be able to deal with the fact that you know if you can get 90 percent right you're in great shape well you're in really great shape you can get 80 percent right you're in great shape uh, and a c the ceo of i forget which business it was um i can see his name graham um his face uh he said uh, if you can if you get 50 percent of all your decisions right you're going to be in a really really great place and and i thought 50 percent that seems so low but yeah. But, it, but really, 50% yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, and I think the same would be said of even people do you know, engagement surveys of, of the entire corporate staff. How engaged are people? Are people committed and involved? And you know, if you can get above 50%, you're also doing great. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the idea of you know, if you've got 50 to 60% of people really committed, dedicated, want to do the right thing, that's fantastic. Mm. You're always going to get you know, people who are negative. It's just some people's character. Some maybe be personal things going on. Mm. You know, generally speaking, those people don't rise up 
in an organization just they, because no one wants to, you know, it's just a natural thing. You don't mm. want to be around negativity mm. uh, if you're trying to do something. And there's this churn that happens as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your three, uh, I want to I just ask some, some, maybe just a few quick quick fire questions before we run out of time here. Your, uh, and I'll start with your three pillars of CEO leadership. What are, the, what, what are those? Yeah, uh, I have none. I, I would not be able to tell you what the three okay. pillars are. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I came in as the CEO of CECOM. Uh, it was uh, three years ago, more yeah. than three and a half years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the the challenge with the, the CEO role, and people generally speaking think of the CEO role, they think you're the top of the pyramid, so mm. to speak, right? Mm. And and as far as the corporate structure that you're in, yeah, an you organogram. are. Yeah. But actually, you're kind of stuck between your shareholders, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's we have four main ones and kind of one of them shared, so five. Mm-hmm. And they all have their different views. And, you know, going from having one boss who probably knew your industry and, you know, you could relate to on a personal level. Now, all of a sudden, you're stuck between having, you know, eight direct reports in the organization below you mm-hmm. and having, you know, 10, 16 above you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those... You know, the pillars of wisdom have to go both ways, so to speak. So you can look at leadership and the things we talked about at the captain of the ship, but actually that captain is part of a fleet. Yep. Right. And pretty yep. soon he's got, got an admiral. You know, yeah, he's got an admiral. If he's lucky he's got one admiral, mm. right? But he might have, you know, six admirals. Right? Yeah. Uh if he has six admirals then he's gonna have trouble. I mean I'm just saying that chain of command would say you've got only one mm. kind of mm. boss, so to speak. So I think in the CEO role, I think the the pillar and I think because of that, it is very much about a communication personal dynamic that you need to develop so that you get the trust of the people above you and keep them informed at the right level. And that's why you need to write that short letter because mm-hmm. board members aren't going to be in my business every day. They're going to meet quarterly for board meetings. So you got to manage yeah. that. Yeah. And you hope to get them to pay attention and you have to be engaging to communicate the key points to them, which is quite tricky. And then you have to do the same going down to your team. Right? You don't want you know, each guy who has his functional responsibility must know what's expected of him for his role and responsibilities, but also how he coordinates with others, right? Mm. It's very true in military situations or, or go back to your naval examples. You know, you can't have the guy with the bazooka doing whatever he wants. He's a great bazooka shooter. But, you know, meanwhile, the riflemen are climbing up the hill yeah. where he's aiming. You know, yeah. you have to say, guys, we need to work together. So you've got to provide that basic information. But I want you to understand the objective Know what you need to do, and then coordinate with each other. Uh, and that and that's not as easy as it sounds. Certainly, the, the, um, the, just a, a point of experience here. I worked uh, as a consultant for a few years for a small consultancy, and we found the the. And this is not going to be strange information to you, but we found we learned that there, in many operations, that the the core issue there was the flow of information, hmm. and so that there there was this cement middle or, or something that existed between senior senior um, executives, senior management, um, and and the rest of the this junior team who were probably often technical operators. How do you deal with that in your business? How do you how do you make sure that you're actually getting the information? So you're talking about being succinct and being, yeah, being precise about information, but how do you get the, the yeah, real I mean it's uh, the real stuff out. Yeah, and that, and that's a challenge because that's a that's a balance between what you're getting told and what you're seeing in reports, so mm-hmm. and and what you're hearing, you know, by walking the halls and and talking to people. Right, we're a small company, so at Seacom, you know, we have the ability that we're kind of you know we're small enough that I know pretty much everyone's name and I kind of know mm-hmm. what they everyone does and we kind of can communicate right. Uh, everyone says that I've got an open door policy, but does it? You know, I think it's more than that. You can't just have wait for people to come to you. You got to mm. go out and, and speak to them, right? Mm. Um, and understand where they're coming from and actually listen. Uh, so I think you know you've got all this barrage of information. You got reports. You got technical data. You might have usage data. You might have financial data. Then, you know, then you get feedback from people and emotions, right? And they they can scupper everything. So mm. I think it's equally as important to say let's make sure we're. We're all agreed, you know, even if we have a dispute at the end of the day, we say, okay, we've agreed that this is the way we're going to go forward. And sometimes you have to set timelines so that people say, okay, we're going to try this for six months. If it doesn't work, we're going to come back again, sit down and review it again. Mm. And generally speaking, you know, six months comes and yes, we're on the right track and we're going to keep going on this track. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, filtering all those pieces of information and emotion, right? not just uh, information. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Uh-huh. You've, you've, you've said filter. Filter then leads me into the next question, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever received? 
I wonder how you'd filter it. But the the worst advice you've received throughout, through your career? Yeah, boy, uh, I've never really thought about that. Um, yeah, uh, I can't think of any worst advice I've ever received. That's a that's a really good position to be in. I mean, I think you know certainly I've seen received lots of advice. Absolutely. Right? Um, and I think you know maybe in my personality and character, I take it on and I listen. And I see, is it is it valid or yeah, not? Test it, you yeah. know. But I, I wouldn't, you know. So that I wouldn't say that's the worst. I, ne- I would never take someone's advice and go, yeah, that's it. I'm gonna do that. I, that's unlikely, right? Okay. So I wouldn't say, oh, I did it, and look what happened. You know, it was a train smash. You know, normally I'd say, hey, let me take that advice, and I'm gonna go ask five other guys what they think, and then mm. I'm gonna go run it by the team that's gonna implement it, and they're gonna, you know, tell me. And by the time I get there, that probably advice has changed, right? Because I think everybody a has answer. a view, right? Everyone has a view. You distill it down, and then maybe that's that filtering, really, mm. right? Okay, well, good. No, fantastic. Thank you. Great answer. Um, the, the, then, I don't know if we're going to get uh, an answer out of you here on this one. What's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would probably be be, be patient. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, that's what we've discussed earlier. Be patient. Was, yeah. that, was that received in a moment? Uh, of course, it was probably received in a mo- moment of impatience, but was it, a, was it received in a moment where you could acknowledge that advice, or is, it, is that retrospective? Nah, that was long time ago advice. That, yeah. uh, you know, I probably, as I said, that mistakes, you know, things you, you do and you realize that, uh, you know, I think by nature, people, when, especially when they're excited and motivated and they think things are going well and everything's, people want to get their ideas out and they want to implement and get it moving and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you're working in an organization with lots of people who have lots of opinions. And so you got to make sure that you kind of take time to, you know, I always think it's like a big ship. If you want to change direction, it's not, you can't just turn on a dime. You have mm-hmm. to actually gradually get people working together to bring that ship around. Uh, and some people, you know, still get impatient. And uh, and I think when you get a little more experienced, it just naturally comes. I think this comes from, you know, being a father from, you know, daily life that you have to be patient. right? Mm. And you have to accept listening to something. Maybe you don't agree with right away, but you can't cut it off because mm. that's going to offend that person. So, you, yeah, you be a bit more patient and think through and distill. Sometimes, you know, uh, I think people we react again too fast i even make myself disciplined if i think something is i'm reacting i will stop put that email or hold off on that phone call for a day and sleep on it and think about it and then usually i change my mind i would say so that says something right i think that usually i'll go let me tone that down and take a different approach uh, than a reactive, uh, you know, that could be anger, it could be frustration, it could be an emotion that's probably not a positive emotion in the situation, and you just have to kind of step back from it and uh, and take a bit of time, and usually that will actually change your position. Mm. Uh, and I think we're seeing that today, obviously, in the world where things are, you know, tweeted out or there's reactive, uh, you know, immediate reactive instead of distillation mm-hmm. and, and analysis yeah. and, and thought given yeah. to something. And and that's on both sides of the of the coin. I mean, I'm just thinking of your classic um, U.S. example. I'm afraid um, yeah, in leadership, yeah, mm-hmm. well, they're easy to they're easy to identify and easy, easy to see. But I I truly do feel like it's a it's a it's on both sides of that fence. Um, yeah, certainly. I think I think it's almost like stirring up reaction, mm. right? And it's not good either side. Yeah. Uh, I think you know when you when you think like a country or a company, when you want to do the best thing, what is the objective we're trying to get to? What's the best way to get to that objective? And it's going to involve a lot of things. But you would think it's going to involve some analysis, right? Have we done this in the past? What's been the result? Have other mm-hmm. countries done this or other companies done this? What's the result? You know, And think through that. And I think that's kind of what we seem to be missing because I think we get tied up in this immediacy uh, in reaction, and mm. I think that's the that's part of the problem. Right? I, I've I've learned as we've discussed, and it's probably the key thing that I'm going to take out of this conversation today, and and that is that in spite of it all, in spite of everything that uh, you are dealing with on an, on a day to day basis, what you need to be is disciplined enough, or have the ability to, which is then discipline, uh, to be able to step back and stop, and and take on board review analyze what we've just been speaking about and it seems like this is something that you have been able to master and which has allowed you so going back to that question of what's the ability um, and so i try and learn in these kind of conversations and so it seems that your ability is not necessarily uh, communication or empathy or but your true ability is discipline could be. I'm not sure if I've mastered that. So no, I, no. I so, yeah, yeah. Certainly, it's something I, I think about and I recognize and say it's something I need to 
to manage, right? Mm. Because first thing in the morning you wake up and you're you know, still half asleep and people are checking emails. Okay, I can't, you know, I gotta stop doing that. I'll mm. read through them and then I'll go in the office and I'll deal with them. Mm. So I'll see if there's anything that's urgent, you know, like if we have a, a network issue or something like that. But if it's not, let me give it some thought. Mm. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of people out there almost in addiction to that immediate reaction. Mm. And it's hard to control it sometimes, right? Mm. Um, because we're, you know, we're always on, we're always, you know, uh, so I try to make sure the phone is, you know, off at meal times. I don't so you take it, put the phone on the table at dinners or lunches. I don't, you know, I try to, you know, separate the time so you can have better quality time and then, and then do those things separately. I do that with the family and I do that with people that I interact with just cause mm-hmm. I just, you know, I find that having the triple distraction or, you know, all these phone calls and what people texting or looking at their email while they're having a meeting, it's just, uh, it's not a good use of time. Well, uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, that's the disengagement that we are so uh, we were talking about earlier, which is uh, hugely counter counterproductive to anything happening. Yeah, anything and, and I think for some reason I don't know exactly why, but for some reason there seems to be a uh, you know emails, WhatsApps, or phone calls are more important than the person in front of you, which is just a strange situation and your example of the of the other ceo who doesn't answer emails <laughs> i think you know that's that's some discipline there mm. right because i think people will, for whatever reason seem to prioritize that like you'll be sitting at a lunch the phone will ring the guy person will answer the phone and mm. you think well i'm here with you having lunch why does this person calling you at lunchtime get priority over me yeah you know? yeah i agree um, and so. and and as you were saying that i was glancing at my at my computer screen scrolling <laughs> But it has been a fascinating conversation. My phone conversation. has been in my pocket the whole interview. Mine, mine as well. <laughs> but thank you. The, I think in my in because we we literally have a minute left here almost, um, and I I so appreciated this conversation. <laughs> and I was just looking quickly through and thinking, do we have we have we touched on everything that you can add? But I think you've you've offered us something that is invaluable um, in my and certainly in, to me. Uh, and it is that conclusion around discipline, about around the ability to take a step back, and um, and and so for that lesson, um, I thank you, and I thank you in behalf of our future CEOs community, um, and thank you for taking the time to be with us, uh, and we look forward to seeing how CECOM rises uh, to the challenges that um, are out there in the world, and with you at the helm. Uh, and you know, we're excited and grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was great to be here. Very interesting discussion. And I think, yeah, I think the the, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, right? I've, it's easy to become CEO. Maybe not easy, but mm. you can become a CEO. I guess the question: Can you sustain it? Can you year after year perform mm. uh, and grow your business and and provide a service and provide value into the marketplace? I think I'm hope we're on the right track. I think we're on the right track, uh, and we'll see. I, mean, I think that's uh, the, you know: Can we stand the test of time? Well, we'll be watching on with uh, with great interest. So thank you again. That's Byron Clatterback, the Chief Executive Officer of CECOM. And that's all we have time for today on Future CEOs. Uh, a, a really valuable conversation, especially for us young, uh, sometimes probably obnoxious, sometimes a, l- a little bit impatient types that want to get things done. Uh, but we need discipline. We need patience. We need to be able to see the future and be smart about the decisions that we make. Uh, we will see you same time, same place with some more interesting insights from CEOs and other leaders uh, next week. See you then. Future CEOs on cliffcentral.com.